We encourage you, if you would, to take out a Bible, Matthew chapter 27, whether on your phone or a pew in front of you. We're not going to have any verses on the screen, but we want to let the Word of God speak to us tonight as we think of what happened as a result of the cross. And we're going to look at some things that are part of that passage that we don't usually focus on when it comes to Good Friday. But the Western world remembered a major anniversary that happened on French beaches on D-Day. I remember the 50th anniversary of D-Day on June 6, 1994. Something happened on that French beach back in 1944, the heroic battle to establish an allied beachhead in France to thwart the spread of Hitler and his madness. We saw during that anniversary some of the films Boys barely out of high school, storming the shore in face of deadly German fire, and many died on that beach, as you know. We saw some of the veterans in those celebrations who survived. We heard their stories of buddies who were buried there. We saw the tears in their eyes of some pretty tough old guys, and those of us who watched, well, I think we were touched ourselves if we were watching those uh, anniversary times of focus. But it was President Clinton who was president then, and he spoke that day, and he was speaking to a lot of veterans on that, bloody, on that bloody beach in that battle. And one phrase of that speech sticks out in my mind, looking at those who risked everything on D-Day, those who gave everything. The president said these words, we are the children of your sacrifice. We are the children of your sacrifice. Good Friday is that yearly reminder of just how much, how much God loves us. And it's something that, if you know Christ, it's a very personal thing. And we just encourage you as we go through these scriptures to think in your own heart about what it meant for Jesus to die on that cross to pay it all. In Matthew chapter 27, look at verse 32. We'll begin there. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elisha. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge filled with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. And the other says, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. 
And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, this is what I want to focus on tonight. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. I wanted you to get just a full picture from one of the Gospels of what happened that day. So prophecy was fulfilled. I'm just going to go through these quickly so we can focus, but I think it's interesting. Lots of prophecy was fulfilled on the cross Dividing his garments, you know, as prophesied in Psalm 22. And we see it here in Matthew 27. They didn't tear his garment. They took it as a whole and cast lots for it. He would be crucified, Isaiah 53. He said he thirsted in Psalm 69. People would stare at him on the cross in Psalm 22. His feet and his hands would be pierced, Psalm 22. His side was pierced. He had a broken heart. We know that because they put the spear in his side and the water and the blood came out and his heart literally burst from the stress of dying for the sins of the world. He prayed for sinners while on the cross. His father turning his back on his son because of the sins of the world were placed on him was prophesied in Psalm 22. And interestingly, they broke the legs of the other two criminals on either side, but no broken bones because he was, Jesus was the perfect lamb of God and the final sacrifice necessary for the payment for sin. Just it was prophesied in several places in Exodus and Psalm. But what I want to focus on for the last few minutes here is power that was displayed by the death of Jesus on the cross. First of all, you see in Matthew 27, the beginning of verse 51, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, it says there. And sin was paid for. You no longer need a priest, a high priest, to go into the Holy of Holies. You know, they did that on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. God moved out of the temple when that curtain was torn into believers' lives. In Acts 17, Paul said to the people on Mars Hill, he said, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Jesus was on his way back to the Father as a result of his death, as a result of the curtain being torn in John 14, 6. Jesus becomes our high priest in Romans 8, 34. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He is our high priest. He's there now praying on our behalf to God the Father. All believers now have direct access to God. It tells us in Hebrews 14, since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our conf confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then, it says, go with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. What a great promise that we have direct access to the Father. All believers are now royal priests. In Ephesians 2.18, for through him we have both access and one spirit to the Father. We see in the second part of verse 51 in Matthew 27, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. It's interesting that geologists have done studies and, it's, and they've narrowed down what they believe is the date, but not for sure the exact year that Jesus was crucified. They believe it was April 3rd, but they're not sure, but they believe it's the year of 33 as we celebrate AD. They realize that they base that conclusion on the review of seismic activity in the region going back thousands of years. The latest investigation reported in the International Geological Review focused on earthquake activity at the Dead Sea located 13 miles from Jerusalem, matching up with the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27, mentions that the earthquake coincided with the crucifixion. To analyze that earthquake activity in the region, several geologists went to the beach of Engedi Spa adjacent to the Dead Sea. VARs, which are annual layers of deposition in the sediments, reveal that at least two major earthquakes affected the core of widespread earthquake in 31 BC, and some other seismic event occurred between 26 and 36 AD. The latter period occurred during the years when Pontius Pilate was procurator of Judea and when the earthquake of the Gospel of Matthew is historically talked about. So in terms of textual clues to the date of crucifixion, Williams quoted a nature paper, and he summarized their works as follows. All four Gospels agree that the crucifixion occurred when Pontius Pilate was procreator of Judea from A.D. 26 to 36. All four Gospels say the crucifixion occurred on a Friday, and all four Gospels agree that Jesus died a few hours before the beginning of the Jewish Sabbath nightfall on that Friday. So they all agree on those facts that occurred. Well, we know that at the end of that day, and they took Jesus down from the cross, and Joseph of Arimathea quickly prepared him hastily and put him in his borrowed tomb. We know that the earth shook once again when Jesus came out of the tomb on Easter morning. Something catastrophic occurs when earthquakes happen around Jesus. So the earth was shaken and the rocks were split. And human deaths don't shake the earth and split rocks. God does. Rocks don't have a mind of their own. They do what God bids them to do, and they shook and split. But notice in verse 52 and 53, verses 52 and 53, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Believers' bodies in our material world will be transformed into perfection in the future in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the promise of the resurrection. This is a taste here we see in this passage of the power of the resurrection. At his death, it shows the foretaste of the day he would come back to life and the hope for our resurrection in the future. The greatest obstacle to our resurrection was not physical death, death and dissolution. The greatest obstacle was our sin and God's righteousness. God can put decayed bodies back together again very easily with the wave of his little finger, but the righteous removal of holy wrath caused the death of his son. 
The last thing we see in verse 54, it's interesting here, it says the salvation of the centurion. We can't know that for sure, but it certainly appears that way as he confessed in verse 54 with, along with others. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and they said, truly this was the Son of God. And we know Romans 10, if people confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus and believe that he died, and of course they didn't know he was going to rise again yet at this point, this was a confessional statement. Truly this was the Son of God. The centurion would probably have presided over the deaths of numerous criminals. None of these individual deaths were marked by the things that accompanied the death of Jesus. The centurion might have known that Jesus was crucified innocently. Pilate gave no charge for why he would be executed. He might have witnessed Jesus' demeanor on the cross. He was meek. He was accepting of his crucifixion. Jesus didn't offer a defense to try to vindicate himself. And it says he even forgave those on the cross, those who were involved in his crucifixion. The centurion heard the mockers call him son of God, and Jesus didn't lash out at the criminals who hurled insults at him. The centurion heard Jesus cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The centurion at the foot of the cross was no stranger to death, and when he observed crucifixions in the past, he didn't witness any great events like darkness coming over at noon and an earthquake. And then seeing the rock split as well. When the centurion saw these things, he along with others who were there were filled with fear and recognized that truly this was the son of God. It's remarkable that the, it's remarkable that the centurion recognized Jesus' true identity and he did so when Jesus died. And some refused to recognize Jesus was the son of God even after he rose from the dead. It would appear to me that he received Christ as Savior after viewing the cross, listening to Jesus' sayings, and seeing his demeanor before and after the cross, as well as the after effects. As we talked about the earthquake, the rock split, the veil torn that he would find out about later. And due to Jesus' death, the victory over sin, Satan, and death would be won on Sunday at the resurrection but Jesus' death was essential to pay for our salvation. And the great news is, as we close to think about, that one day in heaven, we're going to all, those who know Christ, will sing this song. It tells us in Revelation 5, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people a nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign forevermore. May that be our prayer and our hope this Easter as we think about those tumultuous events, not just all that happened with Jesus on the cross, but the power that occurred even after in the natural world to reveal to those that he truly was the Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the scripture, it's very descriptive. It gives us a lot of detail about what happened at the cross. And Lord, may we, as we think about these things, experience them afresh and anew in our hearts and lives to be continually reminded of 
all that Jesus did, the price that he paid, so that we could have forgiveness of sin, a relationship with you, a purpose in life, a security of salvation, knowing that we'll have the opportunity to go to heaven and then we'll get to meet you face to face one day. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to encourage you to take out your communion set if you have one. Does anybody need one? Didn't get one? Raise your hand. Everybody have one that wants one? Okay. And two things that we remind you of. The Bible teaches that communion, the Lord's Supper, is reserved for those who know Christ as their personal Savior. And the second thing is a warning from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, where he talks about that we need to examine our hearts, that we need to come before the Lord with pure, clean hearts as we take this communion set, as we think about the bread that symbolizes the death on the cross, that Jesus was nailed to the cross, that his body was beaten and tortured. And then the cup represents the blood, the blood. It reminds us in Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It's the blood that is the payment for sin. So let's take a moment of silent reflection and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts about anything that we need to ask forgiveness for so that we can come in a worthy manner to eat of the bread and drink the cup. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful and humble before you. We're so unworthy, Lord, to to look and to gaze to your face of holiness, Lord, because we know that we're sinners. But we're thankful that we can know that we're sinners saved by grace. And so, Lord, as we take of these elements, the bread and the cup, may we once again just be reminded of how much you loved us, how much you demonstrated that love, how in the Garden of Gethsemane, you wanted this cup to pass from you, but then you said, not my will, but your will be done. And you went all the way to the cross and laid down your life for us. And so, Lord, we thank you. And we use this opportunity to remember and to focus in on the sacrifice that you made for us. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On that night, Jesus took the bread, broke it, gave thanks, and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. Let's pray for the cup. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this grape juice that represents your blood. Lord, we can't completely understand, but you had this royal blood in your veins that was able to satisfy the wrath of God when you said it is finished, that that had been paid in full. So now, Lord, as we 
take of this cup, may we be mindful of the depth of meaning that it has. And we thank you that God received that blood so that today we can have our sins forgiven, our sins washed away and cleansed, that we can be clean and new and stand before you justified without condemnation because of the blood of Christ. We pray and ask in his name. Amen. Jesus took the cup and gave it to his disciples and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink the cup together.